Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 27 of Hypnosis Weekly. friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a red velvet lined crown of a show lined up for you today. We're back after I was away teaching in London for all of last week. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with hypnotherapist and hearing specialist Deborah Sims. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'll be offering up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Deborah Sims this week. We shall be exploring the subject of tinnitus and how hypnotherapy can be used to treat it. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as many of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have great respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. You can add your thoughts, comments, make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. First of all today is this week's interview. I'm delighted to be welcoming Deborah Sims. Deborah did indeed train with me and my college, but has combined her former existence, her former training and former specialism in a remarkable and impressive way. Earlier this year, Deborah had an article about uh, about her in the mail on Sunday Colour Supplement, featuring a successful outcome of a client who suffered from tinnitus. While Deborah was preparing for the interview, her and I had a number of conversations, and I was often taken aback by the depth of knowledge and professionalism that she had in this regard. As a result of this, I asked her to come and be a speaker at the hypnotherapist peer support group that I run here in Bournemouth. We get around 50 to 60 hypnotherapists from Dorset and Hampshire typically, and following Deborah's presentation, I was inundated with a unanimous, highly positive feedback from the people that were in attendance on that lucky night. Everyone loved her and what she had to say. I wish she'd been able to speak for longer now. For that reason, I invited her onto Hypnosis Weekly with the aim of reaching even more hypnosis professionals. So, get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea, enjoy this week's interview. So, 
as I've just been discussing, I am delighted to welcome to Hypnosis Weekly the one and only Deborah Sims. Welcome, Deborah. Hi, Adam. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's really my pleasure. Um, let's, first of all, let's, let's get straight to it. Tell us a bit about your background. So tell us about your background. Tell us how did you get in your field, um, into this field, and how did you arrive at, um, um, at where you are now? Okay, well, um, I think with me, it's really hard, actually, to pinpoint that moment when I thought, I really, really want to be a hypnotherapist. It kind of crept up on me. Mm. Um, I look back now and, you know, see that perhaps there was some kind of design, but didn't really know it at the time, if that makes sense. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't as clear a direction as it seems now. It sort of unfolded as I went and the more and more um, evidence that I got as I went along that I was heading in the right direction. So I just kind of doors opened and I went through them. Um, but I guess it all really started back in 2010. Um, at that time, I was working in a deaf and hearing impaired support service in further education in Bristol. And my daughter was about to leave primary school. And as much as I loved Bristol, um, I'd grown up by the seaside and wanted to um, give her that experience as well. So my husband and I made the decision and we sort of uprooted and, and moved down to Dorset, um, which was quite a wrench because, I, you know, I loved my job, loved everything about working with deaf people. Um, but I kind of, when I was there, my daughter was thriving, beautiful part of the country, but there was this blank canvas, you know, well, what was I going to do? What direction was I going to go in? And I considered going back and doing a similar thing again, but the pull of doing something new was um, was too strong and started to look at other options, um, one of which was beginning my open university degree in um, international politics, which I loved, um, and, and I'm still doing that now, but this kind of, there was still this other itch that needed scratching. Um, and that was all to do with um, this interest I'd had for a long time in cognitive processing and um, thoughts and how they influence who we are and what we do and you know how we do life really and that kind of thing yeah. um, and I think that had originally really sparked off during my interpreter training days because I trained as a um, sign language interpreter for the deaf back in 1995 and one of the modules on that training course was um, about cognitive processing and the impact of it on our ability to interpret information. And most people hated it. I remember everybody else on the course was complaining loads whenever, you know, Monday morning, it was like double maths on a Monday morning. <laughs> they didn't want to do it at all. Yeah. I was the nerd. I was the geek in the group. Absolutely loved it. I found it fascinating that um, ordinary mechanisms in the brain influence the way that we receive information and process it um, and how that can Im impact, you know, especially at that time, it was all about interpreting. Um, and especially the fact that because when you're interpreting, you're listening to what's being said now, but you're actually communicating what was said three or four sentences ago. Um, so unexpected items coming into um, your mind as you're, as you're thinking and, and processing all of that stuff can really... Um, you know, impact your ability to do that. So if somebody's talking about apples and then they suddenly say penguins, your brain kind of goes, you know, what, penguins? Yeah. What's going on here? 
Um, but by being aware of it and being prepared for moments like that, you're kind of equipped to just to recognize it for what it is. And, and you can do two things. You can query, you know, did I hear that right? You're talking about penguins or, or, or what? Yeah. Um, or you, you just keep going and, and, you know, analyze it later. Um, and, you know, various other things like that, sort of how certain pieces of information are easier to remember. You know, some numbers, series of numbers are difficult. And I just found all of that. I loved it. Um, because it made me realize that, you know, how, that we have control, that we can influence it. Yeah. Um, especially at that time, I think it was the notion of um, preparing and, and expectation, which, of course, you know, and that's what I meant when I started saying, you know, I look back now and I realize there's this chain that runs all the way through into where I am now. Mm. So um, expectation for people when, when, you know, do hypnosis, it's, you know, there's similarities there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so at the time, you know, that's what kicked it off, really. And I started reading a lot around the subject, which led me to NLP. Um, and then, you know, so there I am sitting in Dorset wondering what I'm going to do. Um, and, you know, my research sort of led me from NLP to hypnotherapy. And I think my initial reaction was, well, you know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> me, yeah. hypnotherapist, you know. I had a notion of, you know, that meaning being up on the stage and all of that, those associations. But there, I had this memory of years and years and years ago, somebody that I worked with saying to me that they had a hypnotherapy qualification, which I can remember at the time being quite amazed that, you know, there was this person just like me and they, they'd done that training. And that had obviously, obviously lodged somewhere in my mind. Yeah. And so when I started reading about it, I thought, well, actually, you know, why not? I could. And, you know, luckily happened across your website and, you know, decided to give it a go. Um, but again... I, a, a very good go. <laughs> I to yes, I'm, I'm going to uh, deliberately make sure that this doesn't turn into the uh, Adam Eason Appreciation Society talk this morning. However, credit's due. You know, it was, it was good. And um, 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 I mean, the, the the specialism with regards to the hearing um, um, and and you know people with hearing impairment is 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 a sort of direction that you've gone on where, where you sort of combined your two these two main interests. Mm. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. And um, I I don't think it was until you know, it was quite early on in the course, but it wasn't until I'd started training and sort of listening to you and, and, and realising what hypnosis was all about that um, I kind of had that light bulb moment when I thought, oh, hang on a minute, this is actually quite different to what I'd previously expected when I began, when I, you know, put my name down on the course and realised that, you know, the evidence behind it showed it to be something quite different to my expectation yeah. and that with by making um, adjustments actually it was something that deaf and hearing impaired people can do as well and so that kind of colored my my learning I think I think everything that we did throughout the course I was beginning to make those associations and um yeah, just trying to figure out how, how that could work. And, and I was absolutely thrilled, actually, with that realisation because it was such a wrench to leave my job. I did love everything about it. Um, I love sign language. Um, you know, it's my second language. It's a beautiful language. And 
it's actually quite um, geared towards being a useful tool um, to um, engage imagination, especially because it's such a visual visual um, medium. So, yeah. yeah, I was absolutely delighted. Um, and then, of course, that it even started to become even more um, focused. So from that, I started to think about tinnitus um, in particular um, and hyperacusis. And it, it answered a lot of questions that I'd already had sort of professionally around people's experience of tinnitus. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, again, really wasn't where I expected to go. Um, I'm, I'm very aware that being a specialist hip, hypnotherapist for tinnitus sounds a bit dry. It, <laughs> it doesn't sound um, very hypno-woo, but, um, but actually, you know, it, it is. It's, you know, in my humble opinion, it's end- I find it endlessly fascinating and... Um, well, you know, the, the, um, um, for, those, for those people, for those regular listeners that are unaware, you know, um, I, invited, um, I invited you, Deborah, to come, and, uh, to come and present at our peer support group here in Bournemouth. Mm-hmm. And um, the presentation just, um, you know, had people mesmerised, for want of a better expression. And um, um, the, 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 the information and the stuff that we're going to be exploring later on in our professional discussion is something that I think... Um, um, you, you know, drove me to want to get you here on Hypnosis Weekly um, because I think you know many people um, um, will will not only learn a great deal from that, but become aware of of, of the, the, the level of impact and, and and the way in which you know how it can help mm. um, people with tinnitus. Yes, great. I hope so too. So before we get on to really discussing that and, and, and looking at the application, let's, let's look at hypnosis. Let's look at where you're at as far as hypnosis is concerned. Um, um, Deborah, tell us a little bit, um, um, how do you define hypnosis and, and how did you arrive at that definition? Um, I mean, can you give us some sort of an idea with regards to how you explain hypnosis to your clients and um, how you explain it to people if, if you get stuck in a corner um, at a party by someone that's intrigued? Sure, okay. Um, It's the big question, isn't it? Um, I think I've kind of gone full circle. Uh, A lot of the definitions that I looked at, um, the one that really stood out for me and said everything that I I feel and in a way that I I think that I can use with clients was um, James Braid's own definition. So um, obviously I I alter how I, I... I say it to to each person that I'm working with, dependent you know, depending upon upon them really and their needs. But it's always along the lines of focused and absorbed attention um, on a dominant idea or image, and I I frame that within um, explaining and discussing with them the importance of having an expectant attitude as well. Yes. And I guess that that sort of echoes back to what I was saying before about my interpreter training and sort of getting yourself prepared, you know, when, when, when clients arrive for a, a hypnotherapy session, you know, I, I think it's good to encourage, you know, them to adopt a certain preparation, perhaps even before they arrive. And, you know, that expectation of what's, what's going to be required and what they're going to be doing, you know, in the session with me. Um, and I also emphasize that hypnosis is, you know, a really personal experience, I think. Um, you know, as personal as their, their thoughts around the issue that they're seeing me for. Um, I think, you know, my experience so far has been that people um, spend a lot of energy wondering 
what's expected of them, not yes. really being sure about it, and, and thinking there is a particular way for it to be done, and am I doing it like everybody else does it? Yes. Um, so actually reassuring them that you know, the way they do it is, is entirely personal to them, um, and to trust me that if I think that um, the way they're doing it needs tweaking, perhaps, or more practice, or skills enhancement, then that's up to me, and I will make sure that we do that. Um, but in the meantime, they, you know, to just feel confident in, in what they're doing. Um, and I think reassuring people that it, it is a learnable skill, that, it, you know, this natural process is something that anyone can do, given a little guidance, perhaps, or a certain mindset, um, and, that, you know, I think that's really important. Um, but I think also one of the, the best ways of defining hypnosis is actually by doing. Um, so, you know, that discussion is, is fair enough and very important. But I always make sure that during the initial assessment, we do a lot of the fun stuff as well, which, you know, really sort of releases a lot of tension from yeah. the room. Um, so magnetic hands, you know, the bucket and balloon inductions, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I usually end with a, a session that starts with um, the iFix induction and f is followed by the pen stick. Yeah. And I think really that's the moment when people absolutely understand, one, what's expected of them, and two, really the power of adopting that mindset um, which, yeah, I, I, and I always love it. I love seeing that <laughs> struggle to drop yeah. the pen. Um, and, you know, pretty much each and every person has a little giggle to themselves when they realise that they're doing it. And I, I love to hear that. Um, um, you know, th th there's, there's some real music to my ears there because <laughs> I love this idea um, of, of explaining hypnosis in an experiential fashion. Mm. Um, um, that of um, um, helping people understand what it is by by experiencing something along that you know ad adopt a mindset um, mm. um, and, and, and getting the getting the pen stuck to your hand is is, is, is a wonderful way to explain hypnosis to mm. people and, and, and illustrate that to them yeah I think so and and also of course it's it leads into the therapy stuff as well you know it's great to be able to say to somebody look what you just did by adopting a certain mindset, a, a belief, you know, absolutely believing you could not drop that pen meant you did not drop that pen, but you know that that isn't logical. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that leads in to, to, to more of the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, so tell me, um, um, you know, when, you were, when you've been exploring your way throughout this field and as you've been developing with the work that you've been doing, um, um, what's influenced that? What's influenced your stance and so on? I mean, you've you made reference to, to James Braid there. Um, tell us about any other authors or books or, or people that have contributed that have influenced, you know, your, your stance and, and your approach to, to the way in which you use hypnosis. Okay, yeah. Um, this is quite a challenging question for me because <laughs> anybody who knows me knows I am absolutely rubbish at remembering um, names, actors' names, song titles, film titles, book titles, authors. Um, I just have this mental block, and I, I really should work on that. <laughs> um, 
So I tend to, whenever I'm asked that, it's kind of, well, what, what am I reading now? What am I using now? And I, and I can remember those. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm rubbish. I'm not the sort of person you want to invite along to a pub quiz because I spend the whole time saying, oh, you know, that one, the one that goes... <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, but at the moment, uh, absolutely um, top of my list is um, Donald Robertson's Practice of Cognitive Behavioural Hypnotherapy. Yeah. Um, that's my Bible, I think, at the moment, and um, I'm referring to that a lot. Yeah. Every paragraph really opens up, you know, a world of hidden gems that I think, oh, I've got to go off and read more about that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I love that. I, I, I mean, yeah. I, I love that particular book to the point whereby it's the core text on my own cognitive behavioural hypnotherapy trainings. Um, sure. um, so, so, you know, I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah, and I mean that's what led me to to buying it when I when I was doing that course, and and um, I'm absolutely thrilled that I, I did because it's it, it is a good book. Um, and also, again, at the risk of sounding like teacher's pet now, Adam, <laughs> um, but your you know your very own science of self hypnosis, um, and I think. Really, I mean, I recommend it a lot to my clients um, because it reinforces a lot of the stuff that I'm doing with them, teaching them self-hypnosis. Um, and I think it's great to be able to say to clients, you know, okay, we're working on this issue, but actually the skill that you're learning with me on this particular issue, you can apply to so many other things as well. Yes. Um, so, I, you know, the, the fact that your, your resource is there, they're able to go away and, and perhaps continue that work um, which I think is is wonderful, and you know, so yes, that one. And also, there's a series of books from Sheldon Press um, on a whole range of, of of different issues that that makes quite interesting reading. And I, I like their their book on tinnitus in particular. But I read a couple, and and although they're not about hypnosis and hypnotherapy, they they often prompt ideas and um, ways in which. Hypnotherapy, hypnotherapy can kind of slot into to certain um, issues and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think also I spend a lot of time, because I'm doing this open university course, um, in a wonderful position in that I've got access to their extensive library. Yeah, you can go and access journals and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Um, so I'm unaware that's you know, that opportunity isn't forever, so I am downloading as many journals and articles and sort of related bits of reading that I, I can find on there, and yeah, for future, future yeah. reading, perhaps. And just explain to your tutors that international mm. politics is highly influenced by hypnotherapy texts. <laughs> yes, if only, if only it were, yeah, yeah, I think that therein lies a whole other discussion. Yeah, yeah. Deborah, tell us about some of the applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed. Um, what, what's been one of the most impressive applications that you've seen that you've that you've borne witness to? Mm, um, without a doubt, um, hypnosis for analgesia. I, when um, witnessing that in class, at, you know, it just blew me away. Really, yeah. it's it was one thing seeing people sticking pins in their arms and in their hands. Yeah. You know that that's pretty amazing in in and of itself, but it wasn't just that actually for me. It was what was going on even beforehand. So knowing that that people were in, engaging their imaginations, perhaps on imagining, um, 
you know, their hands in a bucket of ice cold water or, or whatever, and seeing the change in colour in their hands and in their arms, seeing their arm go from, you know, normal healthy skin colour to, to white pretty much, um, the, that just, you know, that was everything that I needed to see really. I think any, any yeah, uh, as a convincer that was pretty, pretty impressive. Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wish I'd filmed it actually because I'd I'd love to be able to show my clients, um, you know, what I saw because I, I thought that was incredible. Yeah. Um, and, and also, of course, you know that working with with people and the those moments when you realise that they're getting it, you know, whatever it is for them. Yeah. Um, perhaps they walk in and their their head is held a little bit higher, or they, you know, the, the way they're talking is different, and you realise it's starting to to have a change that they're making this this change in their life, and you know that's that's proper goosebump stuff, isn't it? It's, it really is. Yeah, people come and even though they want change, they're not necessarily convinced in their own ability to achieve it, and that moment when they're thinking, hell, yes, you know, I can do this. I, that's, that's got to be, that's got to be yeah, pretty yeah. I, I mean, One of the things that I tend to wax lyrical about often and um, probably quite tirelessly to those that, that, that know me well is this notion of self-efficacy. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's such an important factor to, to what yeah. we do, that the development of self-efficacy with our clients and, um, and, 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 you know, wanting to garner it and foster it within our clients is, is you know, a central component to my own work. But, but exactly as you say, when, when suddenly something clicks for them or, mm. or, or a light goes on somewhere or um, um, a penny drops and they make a connection and, and just suddenly start seeing for themselves mm. the, 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 the success that they're having and how capable they are, then, you know, self-efficacy just, just, you know, it just sort of like a grease slide from there, you know, they start zooming um, yeah. um, with it and, and, you know, so that's lovely for me to hear. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit, um, if you could go back to when you started out, um, I mean, you've sort of told us a little bit about the differences and the sort of journey that you've been through, but if you could go back to when you started out as a, as, as a hypnotherapist or started out on your journey as a hypnosis professional, knowing what you know now, um, is there anything you'd do differently? Um, um, and if so, what? And is there any advice um, the person that you are today would give to that younger you? And would you mind extending that advice to hypnotherapists of today? Yeah, well, uh, definitely in terms of doing the training is do your homework quicker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did tend to leave it um, towards the end, and but doing it as you as you go on, you know, that that's quite key. But also it's understanding that being a hypnotherapist does not stand in isolation, that actually you are setting up a business, a practice um, as a professional, and that there are, um, you know, constraints on that, but, but they don't necessarily have to be bad constraints. So it's, it's all prepared. And I don't think I necessarily was prepared. Um, so it's been a, a really fast, steep learning curve for me. And... Um, you know, once you do get your head around that, you know, that's fine. But I think understanding that right from the very beginning means that you right from the get go sort of have, have that in mind. You, you can't just sit in a room and 
wait and expect the clients to come to you. You have to get out there and um, show them really the value that you can offer. Um, yeah. 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 Um, um, I think I think that that that's something that tends to be quite absent from a lot of trainings. That when people then step out into the world and put their hypnotherapy sign on their front doors, um, yeah. um, um, you know, how do we go about actually uh, letting the world know what good, talented people we are? You know, um, um, interestingly, you and I were both at the same meeting recently where we had a had a bit of a discussion about um, um, about whether 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 it's good times to be a hypnotherapist, and um, um, I think. You know the, the the general consensus amongst the group that were having this discussion tended to be you know regardless of the time regardless of the the economic climate it comes down to us and how we apply ourselves and how we involve ourselves how we market ourselves how we brand ourselves and of course you know there's a there's a lot of a lot of entrepreneurial skill a lot of um, other things to learn about and engage in um, that I think yeah people need to need to know a little bit about yes. Um, um, yeah, so I appreciate that. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, what are your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to hypnosis, Deborah? Mm, it kind of feels, a, a, you know, a, a bit of a no-brainer to me, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm relatively new to the business, so on a personal level, it feels like a nice, warm, fuzzy security blanket. Yeah. Um, to know that what I'm doing has been tried and tested. Um, and sort of it just confirms that I'm using reliable techniques um, and that I'm doing all that I can to, um, you know, ensure what I'm doing is, is, is going to be the best possible um, outcome that, that I can give. So, you know, I like it just on a personal level for that, for that reason. Yeah. Um, and I think that shows, you know, because it, if it gives me confidence, then obviously the way that I project myself in the therapy room um, is enhanced as well because I'm absolutely convinced in what I'm doing and that's important for the, for the client for obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, and obviously it's, it's important for the clients too. Um, but I think within that, that doesn't mean, you know, I don't discount anecdotal evidence because you don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater. Um, so, um, you know, I'm aware that I had a great quote the other day. Somebody was saying that the plural of anecdote is not fact. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's true. And yeah. that you can listen to as many anecdotes as you like, but it's still not going to make it fact. Yeah. However, I think that doesn't discount it as something that's really important. And ultimately, it's the anecdote that can lead to research. You know, the more anecdote there are, there is in a particular area, a particular niche in particular, then probably that's where research is going to start to happen, which is, is only a good thing. And, and perhaps, you know, the more we're talking about, about it, and, you know, your, these podcasts are a great way of doing that, um, and hearing those sort of consistent anecdotes, perhaps then the, you know, the, the evidence and the research follows. Um, yeah, so, I, I, you know, I think anecdote is important. And I, also I think it's quite an exciting, exciting time to be a hypnotherapist because 
sort of people that I speak to, there are there are people now, rather than sort of being general practitioners who are setting up niche um, services in the in in a similar way to, to how I'm I am. And I think when you set up a niche practice, you are whether you overtly promote yourself as a specialist or not, the fact that your practice is niche means that you believe you are. And in order to justify that, I think it's vital, really, that there is um, evidence to back you up. You can't just say, oh, well, no, I just like this subject. I think, well, you know, I think it's important to be, personally, I think it's important to be able to rely on something um, more than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, now, Debbie, where can people go? If they want to learn more about you, your work, and um, your approach, where can they go? How can they find out about that? Okay, um, I have um, two websites, www.hypnotherapyboutique.co.uk, and that's a general website. My blog is on there. Um, but I also have a, another one, a new one, which is specifically for tinnitus and related conditions yep. and that's www.the-tinnitus-therapy.co.uk um, and of course there's always um, good old Facebook which is where a lot of the information that I share or that I'm interested in just gets um, uploaded on, onto Facebook which is um, facebook.com forward slash hypnotherapy boutique so if people wanted to go along and like my page then they will um get it you know updates of things that i'm i'm posting on there great and we will um have links to all of those uh on the on, on the episode page at the hypnosis weekly website um, um for now now we're going to be back with deborah and we're going to be um, um exploring um, the use of hypnotherapy as an application in treating tinnitus. Um, for now, thank you very much indeed, Deborah. Um, and we will be right back in just a few moments again. Really enjoyed that. We'll be back with Deborah for our, our professional discussion shortly. Now let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. Just a couple of stories this week. Our first story is entitled, I can only orgasm with a vibrator and my husband isn't happy. I just needed an excuse to say such a line on this podcast. Um, it's just an article whereby people write in about their problems and uh, Pamela Stevenson Connolly responds with her answers. Um, I tend to get a tad disappointed when people like the lady that wrote in here write, is it worth trying something more radical, such as hypnotherapy? Why is hypnotherapy still considered to be radical by some, you know? Because it's not. It's not radical. It's evidence-based. It's sober. And it's becoming more so, albeit fringe psychology currently, it's certainly not radical. You know, simultaneously attaching electrodes to your nipples, drinking powdered rhino horn, and wrapping your head in tin foil ought to be considered radical. Hypnotherapy tends to be founded on common sense most of the time. This week's second news story is entitled Lincolnshire Woman Who Had Five Miscarriages Gives Birth to a Miracle Baby Boy. 
And this is a lovely story. It's about Leah Elliot, who very sadly experienced five miscarriages. Um, my wife and I experienced something similar, so I'm aware of how much sadness it can bring to your life. And I'm always touched and joyful when I read stories like this. Um, Leah states in the article, I've no doubt that baby Joseph is only with us because I was hypnotised. She added, it was by chance that she came across a magazine article in the first place. I was at a fertility show last year when I came across Fertility Road magazine. In it, hypnotist Russell Davis was saying how he can help women overcome fertility problems in their mind. And that's what he did for me. Russell managed to change my way of thinking by helping me live a stress-free lifestyle. He taught me to stop convincing my body that I couldn't conceive naturally. I love reading that, you know. In the article, Leah also goes on to state, Longing for a baby didn't involve putting my life on hold, and I started to realise that if it was meant to be, then it would happen. So instead of continuing to save for IVF, she decided to spend some money on going on holiday to Greece. Explaining her decision, she said, IVF puts a lot of stress on your body, and I was always really worried about going through with it. So we decided to keep trying naturally. I'd been diagnosed with endometriosis and Graves' disease, which both affect fertility, and I was warned by doctors that the likelihood of IVF working anyway was very slim. But just before we were due to go in July last year, I realised I hadn't had a period. When I took a test and it came back positive, we were so excited. I decided to try and keep positive despite the risk of miscarriage, and thanks to my hypnotherapy sessions, I was able to remain calm. Wonderful stuff indeed, hey? You know, this is what it's all about, isn't it? Hypnotherapy helping with life creation. Doesn't get much better than that as far as I'm concerned. So I'll leave it there with the hypnosis uh, in the news for this week. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion. I welcome back Deborah Sims and ask her about her work treating tinnitus, her approach and how it actually fits in with hypnotherapy and what us hypnotherapists can offer. So, here's this week's professional discussion with Deborah Sims. Enjoy. So I'm back now with Deborah Sims. And um, as, as we were discussing within our interview section with Deborah, one of the things that um, um, Deborah had a background with regards to working with people uh, with hearing impairment. And... Um, um, she she had an experience working with a particular a particular man had had a wonderful success um, treating tinnitus. Um, um, it was it was picked up and um, written about in the Daily Mail, and as a, as a result of that and the discussions that I had with Deborah at the time, you know, I, I got to experience some of her brilliance as far as this was concerned, and and I was really keen to have her come and talk about this experience and this expertise that she'd developed with regards to this. Um, um, so she came and spoke and gave a presentation at a peer support group that I run in Bournemouth. And um, um, as I mentioned previously, you know, everybody was very, very taken by it. And um, it was it was a real driving factor for me because I just thought, right, I need to, I need to, the world, more of the world needs to hear, hear from this woman on this subject. And um, so I managed to sort of cajole and um, twist Deborah's arm to come and speak here at, um, at on, on Hypnosis Weekly as well. Um, Deborah, welcome back. Um, first of all, tell us, 
tell us a little bit about for, for people that are perhaps not aware mm-hmm. what, what, what what is hip, what is tinnitus and um, what, what's people's sort of experience of having it okay um, the, the common um, definition of tinnitus is that it's the perception of a sound sort of sound sensations that don't have an external cause and often that's experienced as a ringing or a buzzing sound, a whooshing noise. Um, There's a whole variety of of different um, ways that that's experienced. And it's quite alarming, actually. uh, I can send you a link to add to this, if you like, Adam, where you can listen to um, an electronic sort of um, interpretation of what that sound is like for people. And it really, it, it really is alarming. Mm. You know, this is a sound that people hear constantly, 24 hours a day, day in and day out. And as many as 15%, which is, you know, a high number of the general population, actually um, report tinnitus. That's massive. It is massive. It is, yeah. And 10 to 20% of that number um, suffer from it to the point where they seek medical attention. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, a, a high number of people really. But but what that implies is, if there's ten to twenty percent seeking medical attention, there's eighty to ninety percent of people who aren't. Yeah. <laughs> and right. yeah, and there was a, a fascinating piece of research um, done, uh, I think, in the nineties. And which kind of led to the realization that, and there's a wonderful quote um, by doctors um, McFarren, McKenna, and Bagley, and I think I have those names correct, where they say that whilst people with all types of tinnitus can suffer, equally people with all types of tinnitus do not suffer. Mm. And I think for me, I mean, that's one of the, mo- the, the earliest things I, I ta- say to my clients, because although that seems impossible for them to believe um, straight away, it do- it's quite important. Because if you accept that quote, and, and that's what the evidence and research shows, then there is hope. You know, your yeah. experience of it is not inevitable and, and there is much that you can do. Um, but there's been lots of research and that is growing. Um, it used to to be um, conceived as a problem of the ear, yeah. but it's actually widely accepted now that it's actually activity in the brain. Um, and so, now, now, now there you go, there's something new that I've learned <laughs> already. Yeah, there's, there's lots of connections actually with different areas of the brain, it's, it's amazing, um, and, and that's all very new. And there's a lot of reference to malfunctioning gateways and, and interesting things like that. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the outcome, the important finding, is the importance of stress on that, that that can impact the activity in the brain, um, potentially aggravating and promoting the sound. Um, so, but, but also, not only could it be, is it, I mean, it definitely is, something that promotes the sound in somebody's awareness, but it could actually be an enabler of it in the first place as well. Um, so stress, fear, um, associations with the sound as a threat, all that kind of thing really keeps the sound, and there's, there's a mechanism that I go through with clients 
that describes what and how that is. So really making the distinction, there's two parts to tinnitus. And this is vitally important, I think, as hypnotherapists. Um, there's the trigger and the ignition of the sound. And when somebody goes to see their medical advisor, that's their sphere. You know, that is what they're looking at. Um, and actually, the messages that they're getting are all to do with that medical um, field. So a lot of the messages that people are receiving, and I think it's improving, it's changing as this new research is coming out, um, but certainly back in the day, more, more than now perhaps, they, the messages they were getting were, you know, well, I'm, I'm really sorry, but it's permanent, there's nothing we can do about it, you just have to learn to live with it, um, then they get told, well, we're going to send you off for an MRI. And again, very, very important that this happens. But they get sent for an MRI to make sure there's you know, no brain tumours. And it's really scary. It's yes. really scary. But what we're learning about it is actually that that fear and that threat could be um, instigating the promotion of the sound in somebody's awareness. And yeah. the more that those associations are made and the more acute that becomes... Um, you know, the, the more severe. It's, so it, it actually, the, there's been research that shows that more than um, many other factors, stress is what moves somebody from a mild, from mild distress to severe distress. Yeah, so, I, I find that I find that fascinating, but also potentially highly frustrating. I know that even when I've just been swimming, for example, mm. uh, when I've been swimming. And um, um, I have to put up with a good 30 seconds of that swishing sound of having water in my ear sure. um, uh, uh, until I've stood on my head or, or, or cricked my le neck for long enough that, 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 that it comes out um, mm. um, and I can hear again. Um, but, but it, it you know, that, that small level of stress, yeah. you, you know, that for, 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 for your entire day, your entire experience, mm. um, um, that, 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 you know, I should imagine there's a... There's a good degree of comorbidity with issues around mm. stress, anxiety, depression. Yeah. Would I be correct in saying that? You are. And not everybody, that, again, another key piece of research, um, not everybody who suffers from tinnitus distress is also um, depressed. Mm. Uh, but yes, there is a high incidence for, for those reasons. Yeah, it's sort of self-perpetuating, perhaps. Um, uh, it's another interesting area. Yeah. And so, so how can hypnotherapy and how can what, what hypnosis professionals do? Because I'm mm. guessing that typically, you know, hypnosis and hypnotherapy is not, not, not the first stop for, for someone that's suffering from tinnitus. Mm. Um, so, so how can it help? Well, I think, oh, in many ways, um, and it's all to do with the fact, with the, the mechanisms that promote the sound. So, as I say, moving away from that medical um, view and towards looking, and it's not that this isn't medical, but it's, it's not to do with the trigger or the, the ignition. It's to do with the promotion of the sound and how people can um, impact that to the point that they habituate and I don't think when you're right, I think when people do come to see a hypnotherapist, perhaps it isn't with the expectation necessarily, and unless they've done a lot of research about it themselves, which, you know, is 
something that they do. Um, But it isn't necessarily looking for habituation, which is all about learning to live with with the sound and using skills and strategies that sort of decouples certain mechanisms to do with the way that sound is filtered in the mind and how that is connected to our um, limbic system, which is where we process emotions, which in turn triggers off the autonomic nervous system and our fight or flight. And so that's that sort of key loop, if you like, that gets triggered because once the ANS is triggered and the, the fight or flight mechanism, then the, the impact of that is the association to the sound being a threat is promoted. And of course, then the system thinks, oh my God, you know, this noise is really, really important. It's, it needs to be promoted. This person needs to be aware of it more. And so it, they kind of get stuck in that loop. Does that matter? Have I explained that clearly? Yeah. Does- yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I, I get that. And I mean, one of the, one of the things that springs to mind there, I suppose, is, um, I, I mean, when you talk about habituation, for me, it, you know, my mind always wanders back to when I left when I left home for the first time. I moved to London, mm-hmm. um, and one of my first ever jobs um, um, gave me. I think one of my first ever jobs, my annual salary was three thousand nine hundred ninety-five pounds a year, mm-hmm. and, and 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 on that um, staggeringly large amount of money, um, <laughs> um, I was able to afford to live in a flat that had a tube line running across the back of the garden. Yeah, and I remember spending the first week of living there, just thinking, you know, with everything shaking and putting up with that noise, I'm um, mm. thinking I'm never ever going to sleep again. <laughs> yet, yet a year later, you know, it's almost like I wouldn't have been without it. Um, sure. I got I got so used to it that when I slept elsewhere, like if I was going going home to see my family or something, the quietness there, I started to feel started to feel unusual and peculiar. Mm. So yeah. um, that. Th- is 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 there some parallel with with regards to habituation of of tinnitus, for example? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know that that is key. It's because, and it's not just because it makes life more pleasant um, that we we sort of try and work on stress. Because again, I think a lot of people get the message that oh, you know, you need to just accept it, and stress makes it worse, so don't get stressed. But they're not necessarily, it's not necessarily explained to them how and why. Um, but So I spend a lot of time working with clients on how that system works and how habituation works. And that actually by decoupling st- the stress response from that, that, that loop and that, that process, the sound the importance of that sound is sort of relegated as a priority. It's reduced. And so very slowly, almost like a snowball rolling down a hill, whilst at the beginning, you know, pro- progress may feel a, a bit slow and a bit difficult, it kind of catches catches on. And the aim is that actually it, it becomes, they become less aware of the sound because it, 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 it bothers them less. And, you know, it, it's very hard um, without without um, going into too much detail to, to, to get that across, but there are physiological reasons. You know, it isn't just that it makes life more pre- more pleasant. Um, it actually can have a direct impact on, on that sound being promoted within the brain. Mm. Uh, and, and habituation as well, 
you know, that was a really good example about the tube train, and I use trains a lot to explain it. But I also, um, I, I, I talk about things like, in my kitchen, I, we have a really old, one of those old sort of station clocks, and it ticks really, really loudly. <laughs> now, sometimes I'm sitting in the kitchen, and I've got a nice cup of tea, and I'm reading a book, and everything is great, and I'm not really aware of the sound, um, and, and if I am, then it's quite a nice thing. It's a soothing sound. I really like it. But other times, if I'm late especially, and I'm, I'm feeling under pressure, I hate every single tick and tock that that, clay, uh, that, that clock makes. You know, yes. it's really, really annoying. Um, and, of course, it's then it becomes all I can hear. It's all I can concentrate on is that, is that little clock, and I'd like to throw it out the window. So how I approach it, how I'm feeling, and the context um, really sort of impacts that. And that's uh, something that I, I, I'd like to say, actually, is context is really important. One of the things, one of the messages that when people with tinnitus start going down the habituation route, one of the things they hear is, well, do you know what, the difference between somebody who suffers and somebody who doesn't suffer. It's all to do with your thoughts and feelings and behaviours. And, you know, I mean, that to me, it, that, that feels like a criticism. You know, this person is doing it really, really well and isn't, <laughs> su and isn't suffering. You're doing it really, really badly. And I think it's really important to say that is not the case at all. Yeah. This Somebody who is suffering from tinnitus, this is not a... Um, a personality weakness of any kind. Actually, it's the situation that um, is around their lives. Um, a lot of a lot of what I hear actually, their how tinnitus was triggered when it first was set off, what was going on at that time, and, and the, the fear and the threat around that time. Potentially, how it was handled when they started to see medical practitioners as well. You know, it's that context is what differentiates. So things outside of their control start those negative associations and that's, that carries on, if you like. And the longer, if that's not interrupted, the longer that continues, then the more fixed that becomes. As opposed to somebody who does naturally habituate quite soon, um, Potentially, you know, all of their experiences and those external factors was completely different. So I think it's really important to acknowledge, you know, this when it comes to habituation, it isn't just as simple as saying, oh, well, you've got to do it differently no. because, you know, there's a lot of um, other factors that are going on that need to be addressed. And CBH is great for that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, um, so start to, start to tell us about that a bit. You know, you know um, um, how is CBH great as far as that's concerned i well mainly because of the connections between how sound is filtered within within the mind um so it it is prioritized otherwise you can imagine we'd, we would hear everything you know we'd, we'd have sensory overload yeah. the sense of you know clothes brushing against our skin all sorts of things um, so it, it needs to be prioritised, and it's prioritised in terms of sounds that are obviously more important, more relevant to us, and as I've mentioned, you know, if there's fear or threat attached, and and if there is, if they get if 
the system sort of gets this negative emotional response um, and especially the fight or flight and the stress response, then it prioritizes it as a sound. I think I've gone over that. So with, yeah. with hypnotherapy, um, we can begin to calm all of that down and encourage other um, responses instead so that that filtering, those gateways can start to um, deprioritize it and relegate it in terms of, of its importance. Um, and I think with CBH in particular, it promotes sort of problem-solving therapy in particular, but also um, it emphasizes sort of information giving and... There was a, a study by David Hoare, he's called, in 2011, and he did a systematic review of tinnitus treatment efficacy in the um, catchily, very um, excitingly entitled <laughs> The Laryngoscope Magazine, <laughs> which makes you want to run out and buy a copy, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but he found that... Um, there was a statistically significant reduction in tinnitus severity after even six months later in a group who received nothing more than education alone compared with the self-help group. Now that's interesting. So, mm. I, I, mean, I mean, with, with regards to, to education then, mm. um, obviously a, a lot of what we do is, is education as well, you know, educating our clients with regards to how we, you know, how we conceptualize their problem, how we explain what hypnosis is, how we explain the underpinning rationale of, 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 of the treatment that we're going to be engaging in that day. Um, mm. um, um, it, it, is that, does that then become important for us as hypnotherapists, this, this element of education? Yes, yes, I think so. And because from that, by, by um, giving that sort of education and about how that system works, we've got key areas that then, in terms of hypnotherapy, we can begin to address. So the emotions and how they, they connect to um, you, you know, your thoughts and, and feelings and behaviour, how that, those loops in particular, and also strategies that you can use using hypnosis on um, sort of reducing the stress response as well, and and you know that 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 helps too because a lot of a lot of people really experience the, the anger um, and frustration yeah. of you know as we talked about. So hypnotherapy techniques around dealing with those extreme emotions because that that people that in itself then creates fear. It's not just the fear and the threat of the the sound it's the fear and the threat of feeling like you know you're not who you thought you were <laughs> that yeah. suddenly you're you've become this you know really angry person um and so sort of strategies around managing anger as a separate thing is is quite important as well um so the approach that i use is sort of as divided into three steps so the information is the, is one step and then the, the second step is definitely looking at the, the emotions and the autonomic nervous system and finally looking at the sound um which is quite a small amount actually of what i do in general um 
but offers useful coping skills for people or sort of a fallback thing. And in the same way that hypnotherapy is used to deal with pain, so sort of dissociation techniques and that kind of thing, I find them quite useful. So although actually my clients and I are looking at their, their thoughts, feelings, you know, responses in certain situations and how that's all connected, there are times, you know, and I'm saying to them, well, you know, stay in this situation and a lot of mindfulness and um, ACT yeah. um, and that kind of thing um, and saying, look, and as you know, you've got this, this technique as well, which is going to help with the sound and it's like a plan B. It's like a security, security technique, if you like. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, and so, um, um, as well as things like coping skills in situations where perhaps it's becoming, um, I'm, I'm quite, quite, quite prevalent. Um, um, also, also being able to be, you know, moderately preventative, I suppose, with, with sort of mm. relaxation skills, breathing skills and self hypnosis techniques and strategies to, yeah. to to be able to to, to, to relax oneself and, and, and in very general terms as as, as, as contributing to, to one's well being. Definitely, absolutely, yes, it, it it really is very important, and also um, techniques to do with sleep because people's sleep patterns become um, disrupted as well, and you know that that, Heck, that aggravates off. everything, right? everything yeah yeah it does you know we we all know insomnia how how awful that can be in terms of your general well-being um so in addition to feeling like it's completely out of your control as well um it's it's very important that that's in that that's addressed and and one of the things one of the things that we um that's been a kind of central part of of my own work and and certainly part of the sort of cognitive behavioral conceptualization of hypnosis has been about sort of developing a particular mindset in order to derive the most benefit from hypnosis um, mm-hmm. um i should imagine that when people have tinnitus you know it's quite difficult for them to have um um, um really good quality expectation or really really always you know a, a, the best kind of attitude the best kind of motivation for example um mm-hmm. Um, 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 is that is that a challenge? Yes. Um, well, <laughs> a, a challenge, um, but something that you know is easily addressed. I think. Yeah. Um, with the right approach during the initial assessment. Um, so, as I touched on, people come and perhaps they their expectation is they're going to sit in the chair and they're hoping that you make the sound go away. Yes that, you know, well, you zap me and you make the sound go away. And so, I think a lot of hypnotherapists might, might think, ah, if I learn how to treat people with this, that's what, that's what yeah. I'm going to be teaching them to do. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, actually, the sound for me is a very small proportion of what I work on mm. because ultimately our goal is that they stop being aware of the sound. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want them to focus on the sound. I want them to learn how not to. So, and, and monitoring the sound is actually um, a key thing that happens with people for obvious reasons, trying to protect themselves from, oh, I'm in, if I go in that situation, it's going to be bad. So then, you know, monitoring, well, is it bad? Is it getting louder? Is it not so loud? Or, um, and, and those kinds of associations. So it very much 
setting people's expectations is very important. And um, the client that you referred to, who I saw that was in that, that was written about in the Mail on Sunday. Um, yep. Sorry, in, I said the Daily Mail, didn't I? Yeah. The Mail on Sunday. That's a different social <laughs> strata. Absolutely, and it was the health pages of the right. Mail. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I apologise. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, but anyway, he said that the um, after the initial session, his goals changed dramatically. So, uh, you know, he had come with the expectation that I was going to help, you know, get the sound sorted. Um, but once all of this had been um, clarified and once he'd gone over and started to realise, um, you know, that he had a role in this and the impact that he could have himself and the types of sort of hypnotic interventions that could help and why they could help and how they were going to help, you know, absolutely changed his goals. Um, and, and then we could, we could continue and we could, we could go on. And, you know, I think that's vital to um, setting the right attitudes. So as you say, you know, a lot of the clients as well are feeling like there is no hope. They have told by many professionals that there, you know, there is no hope, there's no cure, there's nothing we can do. And whilst that might be true in terms of the sound itself, actually it, it isn't accurate in that there may be nothing that can be done about that ignition or trigger of the sound, but there's actually plenty that can be done in terms of habituating to the sound so that it's deprioritized and people just aren't aware of it anymore. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's fascinating. It's also incredibly exciting because, mm. you, you know, what, what I think is exciting for us as hypnotherapists is that, that, that that's absolutely our, our, our skill set, our sphere of professional competence in order to help people in mm. that way and, 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 and helped, help them um, um, in, in, in that fashion, as opposed to um, um, this notion of having to cure it. Yes, um, yeah, um, and it's really important to, you know, to get that across to clients as well, that this is not a cure. Yeah. I am not offering a cure. Um, you know, this isn't some far out <laughs> um, thing that I'm trying to convince you of. You know, this yeah. is practical, down-to-earth techniques, skills and strategies that you can use and that potentially are going to get you to a point where you have habituated to the sound and that that sounds like the magic's been taken taken out of it but you know arguably but for me that's that's putting the magic in and I see in clients when they realize that 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 they they get that magic from it suddenly as you as you were saying earlier that self-efficacy but it, it also with clients it's it seems like such a leap to say to a client who's got that noise, and I, and, you know, I do stress if people go and listen to that audio, and, and I will give you the link, um, to say to somebody who's hearing that 24 hours a day, oh, you just need to learn to relax. Why can't you just relax? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yeah, that, that's crazy. So, yeah, one of the most unrelaxing things that can happen. Yeah, so being able to imagine being able to relax when you have that going on mm. is really asking a lot of people. So you're asking them to trust 
you as the professional to trust themselves, to trust the process. You know, that's a really big ask. So I, I do say to clients, look, you know, you're going to have your doubts. I, I know that. But suspend those. And it's, I use the analogy, it's like standing one side of a river and knowing that you need to get to the safety of the bank opposite you, but the river's really fast flowing and you think, there's just, I cannot get there. The only way you get there is by looking at that first stepping stone. And you get onto that first stepping stone and then the next and the next and the next. And hopefully before you know it, and that's my goal, is that they're not even going to know when it happens. It's just going to happen. (laughs) They're standing on the the banks of the safe, you know, the safety across, across the way there. And so sort of suspending those doubts and just trusting, trusting that, that I know what I'm doing and that they do have that ability and that I'm going to show them how. Because a lot of the, the times they're told to just relax and all of that, nobody ever tells them how. Mm. So it feels like it's one simple thing, like it's an event. So actually explaining to clients, it's not an event, it's a process that... That relaxation isn't something that just happens, but look, there's all of these things that you can do one sure and certain step at a time that's going to get you to that point. And we can break all of that down and and go through it step by step. And, I, uh, you know, that, again, really important. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, um, I could just go on and on asking about this because I'm fascinated by it and I know that you've got um, um, so much to say on it and, and I, you know, I'm just loving listening to you. But we're out of time. Oh, wow. Um, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're there with the time. So thank you so much, Deborah. There's, there's so much of use and benefit for people there. Um, um, I will make sure that there are links to, to, to all of the bits that you've mentioned throughout and and for anybody that wants to go and read more and explore more about this um, they can visit the website the-tinnitus-therapy.co.uk track Deborah down and have a good listen um, um, and, 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 and a good explore I mean. Um, Deborah Sims thank you very much for being thank here and being my guest this week on Hypnosis Weekly. It's been my absolute pleasure Adam thank you so much for inviting me. enjoyed that discussion some fascinating information in there um a link to deborah's personal website her specialist tinnitus website and some other useful articles and resources discussed uh, all feature at their hypnosis weekly website so on to this week's fact of the week and this week's fact is a bit controversial i guess at least to some it will be and the fact is just this the field of hypnosis is riddled with nonsense fact now let me read you a quote from Michael Heap. Go into any large bookshop nowadays and you will most likely find that their shelves are liberally stocked with books about hypnosis and its numerous applications. Pick out any such book at random, open it anywhere and look anywhere on the page. The chances are that what you are reading is plainly wrong, is misleading, is questionable, has little support or requires significant qualification for it to be accepted as a valid statement. And that's Michael Heap uh, in the publication Hypnosis, The Modern Perspective, 2006 edition. 
Um, Stephen Lynn and Irving Kirsch and colleagues also emphasize um, in a paper that clinicians can rely on numerous pieces of empirically derived information to educate their clients and inform their practice. And they offer up a, a, a sheet that offers up some points that is substantiated, that these points are substantiated by reference to a major piece of scientific research, most of which are over a decade old. On several key points, the findings clash with popular misconception, pop psychology, new age therapy, stage hypnosis, and certain principles of hypnotic regression therapy, um, as well as um, a lot of the principles used within NLP and Ericksonian hypnosis, all do tend to be consistent, however, with the theory and practice of sort of evidence-based or cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy. So, I'll leave you on this note with regards to our fact. I'll quote from the founder of modern hypnotism, James Braid. I beg farther to my remark, if my theory and pretensions, as to the nature, cause and extent of the phenomena of hypnotism, have none of the fascinations of the transcendental to captivate the lovers of the marvellous, the credulous and enthusiastic, which the pretensions and alleged occult agency of mesmerists have. Still, I hope my views will be the less acceptable to honest and sober-minded men, because they are all level to our comprehension and reconcilable with well-known physiological and psychological principles. And Braid wrote that back in 1853. So there you go. The field of hypnosis has numerous people suggesting lots of nonsense. It has been so forever, it would seem. Last week, in episode 26 of Hypnosis Weekly, I announced a new listener competition with a prize. Remember to get in touch with me if you heard the word today. On another note, I had an interesting exchange with a listener recently who disputed my stance on the existence of an unconscious mind. He told me that he believed there was such a thing. I explained that my stance was due to there being no evidence for the existence of an unconscious mind in the way that he was portraying it. He said that there was no evidence to suggest that there was not an unconscious mind. This is a classical logical fallacy, a non sequitur argument. The responsibility of proof lies with the person making the claim of something existing. We remained civil between us, but he said that my problem was um, is, that, is that I don't have an open mind. He felt I needed to be more open-minded. Hmm. I responded, so... When you see a rainbow, do you think, oh, that's pretty, and know that it's caused by the refraction of sunlight into its component parts by precipitation? Or do you keep an open mind to leprechauns? So that was just in relation to this week's fact. I thought I'd mention that. And heck, how to win friends and influence people in the field of hypnosis, eh? So next week, um, I'll be welcoming a titan of a hypnosis professional, a mercurial force of the hypnotherapy world, a stellar, top-end giant of a guest. Yes, indeed, next week things get reversed here, and it will be me being interviewed. My friend, the hypnotherapist Steve Baxter, poses the questions, and I'll be answering them. Many of you have requested such a thing happen, and so we are responding to such requests. I have many more other and alternative exciting guests that we'll be welcoming to Hypnosis Weekly in the coming weeks too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, 
All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode of the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle, .com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions, and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website, and I'll make sure they're addressed, answered, and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else, and really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks go to Deborah Sims. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Thank you.